Show. I keep forgetting we gotta rank some Beatles songs again. A little Michael McDonald for you. Oh. Forgot we were doing this today for a, a brief moment. Slipped doing my what? mind that we were taping a show today. Oh. And then I was like, oh yeah, we're taping a show today. And uh, it's gonna be a dues. A dues. Oh yeah? A dues. I always feel like doozy is bad. Is no, it bad? A, a doozy's a good thing. Is it? A doozy, a doozy can be like a big thing. Okay. Yeah. I always kind of felt like it had like a bad connotation. Well, if it did, we're taking it back. Okay. We're going to make it a good thing. Okay. Welcome to episode 25, everybody. A doozy. A doozy <laughs> of an episode here at Ranking the Beatles. How's it going, gang? Uh, I am your host, Jonathan. Over here to my left is the effervescent and beautiful... Miss Julia. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> How's everyone doing this week? Hopefully well. Um, if you're tuning in on the day we release this episode, happy anniversary to you and I. Yay. It's our anniversary. 13 <laughs> years? Correct. Ooh, that's kind of an unlucky number. But a great song. Boom. Ah, <laughs> I see where you're taking this. You guys. Super excited about today's show. Uh, get to talk about not one, but two of my favorite bands. One, obviously, the Beatles, because this is ranking the Beatles. Two is the band Big Star. Uh, we've mentioned them a couple of times on previous episodes uh, with our guest Adam Hill. Big Star, for those who have never heard of them, uh, were a band uh, from Memphis in the early 70s, started by Chris Bell Andy Hummel and Jody Stevens. Uh, they were joined by singer and guitarist Alex Chilton, who had had chart success in the late 60s as the teenage singer of the Box Tops, who had hits such as The Letter, uh, Neon Rainbow, and Cry Like a Baby. Uh, he'd seen some stuff. He toured the world. It's absolutely bananas to me that he was a teenager when like he sang those songs. 16. Like, yeah. Bonkers. On the road with the Beach Boys. But just like his voice sounds so mature. Oh, yeah. Like I, I could yeah. not believe that he was a teenager when he sang those yep. songs. I was like, no I'm one sorry. else believed it too. Everyone thought he was like an older black guy. That was like the common thing was like, wait, they're teenage white kids? <laughs> that sounds like a mid 30s R&B singer who like smokes a pack of cigarettes a day. <laughs> um, but Alex joined with the other guys. Uh, they put out over the course of their time together three records uh, that sold like no copies. The band went absolutely nowhere, uh, victim of bad distribution, bad deals. The band co-founder Chris Bell left after the first record. Um, they did two more without him, total of three albums. All three albums are in Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. Uh, they became a huge influence on power pop bands uh, like R.E.M., Teenage Fan Club, The Replacements. Um, they inspired, you know, so the people, the few people that did hear these records kind of traded them as like a little secret between friends. Like, oh, you've heard of this? Well, check this out. Um, 
So this kind of cult built underground of, about Big Star over the years. Uh, Alex and Jody, the drummer, reunited in the 90s and continued on until Alex's death. Uh, Chris Bell passed away from a car accident in 1978, having only released one single as a solo artist. And then in 92, uh, Rhino Records released uh, his, basically a posthumous album called I Am The Cosmos, which is absolutely fantastic. And our guest today is a Lansing, Michigan-based journalist and music critic and author whose book, There Was a Light, is the story of Chris Bell and Big Star, and I cannot recommend this book to you enough. Uh, He's also been featured in national and international publications, including Uncut, Record Collector, American Songwriter, and Ugly Things Magazine. Friends, please welcome to the podcast today, Rich Tupika. Rich, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm a, a, a big fan of the Beatles and a big fan uh, of both of you as well. So it's it's great to be uh, to be on the show. Well, thank you, man. Aww, it's thanks. it's good to see. You. It's been a hot minute. Um, Rich and I, listeners, we met. Oh God, it must have been five years ago, six years ago. Um, yeah. In Memphis at a uh, a concert, uh, which was a tribute to Chris Bell from Big Star, and uh, at the time, Rich was working on his book. Um, and was also one of the people instrumental in putting on the show, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Like it kind of correlated yeah. with your research. At right. The time. Yeah. It was, uh, I was planning on going to Memphis to research the book. And at that point I'd already befriended Adam Hill, who's been on your show yeah. and he's you know, the big star archivist. And at that time he worked at ardent studios where big star recorded. So I just kicked around an idea with him. I said, hey, like, would you want to, like, throw together a band and uh, do some Chris Bell and Big Star songs and play them at, like, the high tone, you know, the music venue mm-hmm. in Memphis? And he was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And, like, maybe early on he realized how much work it was, but, like, I don't think I really realized how much work went into it. But when I showed up and I saw you and Adam and that whole crew of Memphis people – it was uh, really amazing. I mean, you guys nailed so many of those songs Man. so perfectly, and uh, it was an amazing night. Chris Bell's family, um, th- they came out to the show, so it was a, r- a really special night. Yeah, that was really cool. I mean, I mean, being kind of the outsider of, like, the non-Memphis guy that was there, purely because, like, I'd made a record there and, like, fell in love with the people and the culture um you know, of that kind of group. A little bit, Adam. A little bit. I fell in love with Adam. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was really cool to get, to get, you know, to be, you know, brought into that and then to get to play that music in front of his family was really like an amazing moment. Um, yeah. And that, uh, Richard Roseborough, who played with Big Star and played on all the Chris Bell solo material, mm-hmm. that was the last show he ever played uh, yeah. drums. Keith Sykes, uh, Memphis legend played, uh, you know, you, you had, you know, the guy from the scruff. So it, it was a really cool night. And, uh, yeah, it was a big night for big star fans. We had people driving from like one guy drove from Pittsburgh. Wow. He, like I, he told me, he's like, I got out of work and I drove straight from work all the way here and he had made it just in time. Wow. Other people flew in from across the country all for mm-hmm. a, a tribute band. Yeah. So I think that says a lot when a cover band plays and people fly in for it. You yeah. Know? amazing yeah that was really a really amazing moment Um, that's one of my like favorite you know musical performance moments that i've ever had for sure so likewise thank you for being for being instrumental and putting that together 
yeah, just a nerd, you know? Yeah, <laughs> That's all same, it's dude. <laughs> right. And thanks to both of you as a spectator, I had a wonderful time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Me too. I, I drank the whole time, so it was fun. <laughs> nice. I wasn't working too hard. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a little bit before we dive into into Big Star, you know, I want to know how do you how did you first discover the Beatles? When did they first come into your radar? Um, yeah, I was you know, I grew up in Michigan. Um, so obviously here we have Bob Seger and, um, you know, all that stuff, but we also had oldies radio, Kid Rock. Yes. <laughs> Luckily that Kid Rock wasn't even, um, Ted Nugent. Uh, a, a rapper yet, uh, but yeah, <laughs> definitely Ted Nugent was in the air. Um, but that was back in a time, uh, you know, I'm an eighties kid. So I grew up at the tail end of that prime time for oldies radio mm-hmm. where they would still play music from the 50s and 60s um and so i'm pretty sure that i picked up on them from listening to oldies radio and uh the first tape that i ever bought was rock and roll music volume one this would have been i believe it had to have been 87 um because the next year uh i moved to a different city so i remember it had to have been 87 so i was six years old and I got this Beatles tape, and um, around that same time, either with, within a few months, I also got Elvis Pure Gold on cassette. Mm-hmm. So um, early on, I was into old rock and roll music. Um, and Elvis, I, I like I told you earlier, I I, uh, I discovered that from Elvis and Me, a terrible made-for-TV <laughs> movie. But I watched that, and I, you know, when you're six years old, seven years old, and you see, you know, you don't realize, wow, there's rock stars. It was just kind of a, a weird thing for me. So, um, I bought the the Elvis uh, tape, and I bought the Beatles tape, and I listened to them so much that um, I like popped one of the tapes. I remember, I, I spliced the tape back together in the Beatles with like scotch, scotch tape. tape. I remember, yeah. <laughs> I remember it busted and I like freaked out. I don't even know how I knew how to do that, but I just knew I had to repair the tape. Yeah, and it worked. <laughs> it worked. Uh, so, um, so early on, I was really into the Beatles early catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, even through high school, like later on, I mean, I was your. Um, can we cuss on this or not? Oh yeah, by all means. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in high school, even like at the peak of me being a complete idiot, you know, burnout, um, when everyone really loves the tripped out Beatles stuff, I was like always kind of proud. I'm like, oh, screw all that hippie stuff. Like I like the early Beatles stuff. Yeah. You know, even <laughs> when I was a complete burnout and should have been listening to their trippier stuff before. <laughs> I liked it, but I always uh was more into the very early era of the it was like a high as a kite listening to love me do <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah man yeah exactly and um you know and then because my first record player i got th- that the the red greatest hits the double lp mm-hmm. with all the you know um so just early on i had the, the i had exposure to the earlier stuff and i really loved it right and um and don't get me wrong i liked all of it but later on, I, I started getting more and more into uh, the trippier sides of the stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I've always had an appreciation for pop music. And I think that's, you know, eventually I wrote a, a book about big stars. So yeah. it's not really too surprising. You, you, know? you found the tree and you climbed it, basically. Yeah, right. 
Was yeah. there a uh, any particular song or album? I know you mentioned you know rock and roll music was the first compilation you got. Was there was there like a full album that really like caught your attention at some point? Right. Um. I mean, probably. I mean, all the first five albums, all you know, all of them. I, I would get like the the U.S. editions, and eventually, like you get Beatles for Sale, which I don't think that was not even originally over here, right? That was a UK. Yeah, that was UK only. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, I just kind of slowly bought them all. They're they're all good. You know, that's that's the thing. I mean, they, right. they put out so you know all all of their albums are really great. Even um, you know the song we're talking about today. It's on Beatles for Sale, which some people kind of criticize uh, f- for, you know, there's quite a few covers on it and stuff. But I really like their cover of rock and roll music. I oh, mean, yeah, it's same. So, it's so good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was never, you know, I, I'm never like, wow, just Sergeant Pepper's blew my mind. And it did. Mm-hmm. I really love, you know, I remember there's a picture of me looking like a complete geek holding up my sergeant pepper cd for christmas you know it's really embarrassing sure um i've got many of those too right so yeah i mean and i i I, you know i wasn't rich so i had to save up money and and buy this stuff or i had to wait around for christmas or a birthday uh to get this music so it wasn't like oh i love the beatles i'm gonna go out and buy all of this all at once it was kind of one Mm -hmm. of those things where i slowly got all of the albums by the time I was in high school at some point, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a slow burn. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the beauty of like, and it still exists to some extent, but like oldies radio, like can turn you on to so much great stuff, whether you stumble into a catalog that's, you know, eight years of just riches and the top of the, the top of the heap or like a band that has like two great songs and the rest is just pure shit. Um, right. you know, there's, <laughs> right. there's so much good stuff to find yeah, and then there's exactly. so many lines yeah. that you can trace from there, you know, to either get to a band, like yep. a, like a big star or, you know, you find out like, what was the one that blew my mind the other day? Um, Argosy uh, was the name of the band. I had to look it up. I have it on my phone. It's Argosy. Okay. One song. Uh, and it's, it's a gem. It's, but it's one of those great things where you're just like, nothing else came of this. <laughs> Right. What a what a weird tangent you went on this one time. <laughs> so you know, as, so you've been a, a music writer uh, in addition to your book um, for a number of years. This is kind of a roundabout question, but I like to ask it to everybody. Um, is there any way that you could find that you would say the Beatles have influenced your work or how you approach it? Um, not so much in like, oh, I can write because I'm a huge music fan or something like that. But like, is there anything that you go like, you know? this one thing they that they did inspired me and I carry that in, in what I do. I think with the Beatles and being um, a writer and a music writer, and I write for a local paper. Uh, so I, I write a local music column for me more than anything. It's hard not to trace everything back to the Beatles, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. uh, there's what they did um, just, you know, went over everybody back then and it's still to this day that's why i don't even want to get into it but the you know the the beatles haters and the people who say they're overrated and (laughs) uh in none of those people i don't think grew up during beatlemania Mm -hmm. neither did i but it's very easy to say um you know 40 50 years later whatever that the beatles don't matter when they didn't experience what happened and, and they didn't see 
how that affected so much. So um, for me, it's always constantly trying not to tie something back to the Beatles or compare it to the Beatles just because I hear the Beatles in so much stuff. Even Chris Bell, um, you know, his song, I'm the Cosmos, when he goes the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah part, mm-hmm. you know, that's pulled from the Beatles, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, he got that. It's just slowed down and, you know, filtered through some Valium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that's, so, yeah. that, that's spot on, you know, it's, and it's so easy, you know, for people to say, it, it's kind of like, you know, someone going, you know, who cares about chocolate ice cream? Cause like it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's always been there, but it's always been right. amazing. So you can't yeah. be like, Oh, chocolate ice cream sucks. No one thinks that like, <laughs> right. it's everyone acknowledges that it's great. They just aren't like celebrating it all the time. Right. And you know, I get it. There were other great bands back then, the kinks and, you know, I love a lot of bands uh, that only put out, you know, 145, all those back from the grave compilations, mm-hmm. you know, the, the garage rock stuff. Like I, I like love all the that sunshine, well. Andrew Sandoval's right. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And all the nugget stuff and even the more just grimier stuff where like it was never even played on the radio. I mean, I love a lot of sixties music, but um, all that stuff, that proto punk stuff, those bands started trying to rip off the Beatles. They weren't, trying to sound like a primitive garage rock 60s band they were trying to sound like the beatles they just couldn't you know because they were (laughs) yeah so um you know there i know a lot of people who love all this primitive uh garage rock and you know and it's all good music and i i love it too but they hate the beatles and i find it funny because those bands worship the beatles and that's why those bands that they love exist yeah you know yeah well, let's uh, let's go ahead and hop into it. You ready to uh, to tackle this tune? Yeah, man, let's do it. Excellent, excellent. Um, coming in today at number one ninety two is what you're doing. Look what you're doing. So a brief rundown on the history of what you're doing. Uh, Written by Paul in Atlantic City at the end of August, early September, uh, during a few days off in the band's 1964 U.S. tour, What You're Doing is a track recorded for the band's fourth album, Beatles for Sale. Uh, The band starts recording the song the first day of the sessions for this record, September 29th. They put down seven takes for the song this evening. They come back to it the following day with a further 12 takes and mark take 11, as the best. Paul even double tracks his vocal on the bridge on this take, so at some point they're thinking, you know, we have a keeper here. Now at this point the song is much less refined than the final version. Uh, The track is much more vocal harmony driven by John and Paul, 
the bridge and guitar solo feature a key change, which is pretty interesting at first listen. And it's also an idea that they hadn't really explored much at this point, just kind of throwing a key change in the middle of a song. Uh, there's a neat break between the last chorus and the final outro. John plays a much harsher rhythm track, doing the same kind of staccato part uh, he, that he would do the following year and get on my nerves tremendously uh, in the unreleased song That Means a Lot. And also <laughs> missing uh, is Ringo's fantastic syncopated drum part. So the band reapproached the track October 26th, the last day of recording for the album. Uh, they've obviously put some time and thought into the track over the last month, and a new arrangement and a new signature drum part give the track the support it needs. And the band end the session for the album, going out with a blueprint, I think, uh, for what later becomes called Power Pop. So, why do I have what you're doing at number 192? I genuinely enjoy this track. I, don't, I think it's got a lot going for it. Ringo's drum part... It's kind of both a nod to Be My Baby, and then it's also different enough to be kind of like an early signature part for him. Uh, the 12-string riff just shines throughout this track. Uh, it's something that bands, like we'll talk about later, like Big Star, uh, the Raspberries, um, R.E.M., bands like that all kind of embrace the 12-string and do kind of what is happening on this track here. Uh, Paul does some fantastic wordplay on this track as a writer, I really love how uh, he breaks the rhyme up from being the last word of a line and then rhyming a phrase that runs into another line. So he's got, what you're doing, I'm feeling blue and lonely, which I think is like a really neat trick. Um, and shows, you know, he's 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 much more capable of a lyricist than, what, than he often gets credited for because he does a lot of the kind of like June moon spoon thing sometimes. <laughs> and this is yeah. a really neat trick that I, I kind of, you know, Keep that in your pocket and use it again, Paul. It might come in handy one day. <laughs> um, I think the gang vocal in the verses is a great trick. Uh, the piano in the uh, solo is fantastic. And overall, Paul's vocal is just phenomenal. He's putting out just great vocal tracks at this point. He's like completely in control of all aspects of his voice. And I think at this point, he's kind of getting to that best voice in rock category. Um, I think it really benefits from the refinement they put into it during the session. Uh, if you listen to, there's an early take, the take 11 uh, is on YouTube. Uh, it'll be playing in the episode at some point around here. Uh, when you listen to where it was there ver versus where it ends up, it starts out as really nothing special. Uh, but by the time they rap on it, every part is neatly in its place. It's so well arranged and performed, like it's really just a perfectly constructed little pop tune. I really have nothing bad to say about this song. Except for some reason, it never sticks in my head. I never remember the song or really think about the song. Um, and I don't know if it's for lack of anything on the song's part, or there's just songs that I think are way better, like 191 other songs. Um, <laughs> Specifically. But yeah, but for some reason, it's never been one that sticks into my mind. So, my two cents. I open the floor to you guys. Rich, as our guest, what do you think? Right. I mean, it could be the name of the song. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. What you're, you know, it's just it doesn't have. It's not yesterday, or you know, Sergeant Pepper's. It's not the the name itself is kind of not memorable. Name. It's the, not the, what the, are you doing? Like yeah, what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's just the the, the name isn't hooky, but the, like you said, the song is. I mean, yeah, it starts with that "Be My Baby" little drum beat, which I mean, it came a year after that, so it had to have been some sort of a nod to that. I'm sure. I'm yeah. Sure, 
I'm sure the Beatles were, I mean, there's photos of them with the Ronettes, right? Oh yeah, they're, they're huge fans of, of the Ronettes and girl groups in general. They're huge fans of Phil Spector. I think the he Shirelle, was, yeah. yeah, I think he was with them for part of their first U.S. tour. There's like pictures right. of him on the plane hanging out with them. Right. So yeah, I mean, and then you have the, the Rickenbacker 12 string that, you know, the birds cop that and then, you know, enter Tom Petty and everybody else mm-hmm. who, who had that real, uh, that sound. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, like you said, it's one of those really great Beatles songs, but when you have so, when all of your albums are so good, it's, you know, <laughs> just one of the, the entire pile. Yeah. I find the guitar solo uh, to be terrible. It's something about just like the tone and the way it's played. Like I don't mind the tone in the rest of the song, but for some reason in that solo, I'm just like, Ugh. I'm making yeah. like lemon face. Just they, like, Ugh. they definitely put like a distortion on it, which is tricky on a 12 string in general. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely kind of like a harsh distortion. It really is a little bit. It like, agitates my ears and i don't care for it i do love the piano behind that guitar Mm -hmm. i think it sounds amazing like i love the piano in the song i think it's wonderful um because it's like really uh like deep like a like low like the notes are like sort of more on the low end than like a sort of jangly high-pitched kind of I don't know. I'm not a musician, no, so it's really hard for me to like right describe the, music things. Because cause <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> the, the 12 right. strings hang, handle in the, the high frequency right. of things, so the piano's in that kind of mid-low area. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's like such a nice little compliment, and it, it doesn't jump out at you on the first listen. You know, mm-hmm. when I do my sort of casual first listen, and then I like stop everything I'm doing and do like a more intense listen, that's when I heard the piano, and I was like, oh, hello, little Fran, back there <laughs> behind this abrasive guitar yeah <laughs> yeah it is kind of an ugly sounding solo and I, I kind of thought that it was funny and i think that kind of just goes with the whole era that they were coming in right there i mean the, el- the album title is uh beatles for sale mm-hmm. you know and it had all these kind of like darker songs started cropping up on this record so yeah it's not surprising that they're playing this kind of weird ugly sounding solo yeah. you know yeah. They they didn't feel the need to make something bright and poppy. Um, I mean, it's got a bright and poppy riff that runs through the entire track for the most part. So it's oh, almost yeah, nice no, to have this kind of harsh, abrasive right, juxtaposition the in the middle. Is exactly. it though? Is it nice? <laughs> nice to them. That's up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, like you said earlier, like I really love sort of the not the wordplay, but the, the rhyme scheme play, mm-hmm. I guess, that he does. Mm-hmm. That it's, like, I can't think of another song that does that. I mean, I'm sure there are some. Sure, Just yeah. because I can't think of them doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm sure there's hundreds of them. Um, but, like, it's, I think that's, like, a really cool, and it helps to kind of, like, move the song along, I think. Yeah. Instead of just, like, rhyme, rhyme, and then wait a beat. You know, I next. love you, I'll always be true. Sky yeah. is blue. Like it just yeah. keeps going, so it kind of, it doesn't like it doesn't have that like hard stop that mm-hmm. some lyrics have. So I think that's like a really fun, um, little, another little how do you do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the the entire song, um, like you said, I mean, Paul just sings so great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. It, it, and I'm the same way. Like I never think, oh, this is a classic Beatles song, but when it 
I don't skip it. You know, I'll skip Kansas City. Um, See, I'm not I love skip that version. That. See, you know, it it all depends. I mean, with 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 cover songs, um, with the Beatles, I love all of theirs except for I just don't like the song Kansas City. Period. So yeah. that could be, uh, you know, anybody. Uh, doing that one um but typically i love all of their 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 stuff and there's a few that i'll I'll skip i would not this isn't a skipper track that's for yeah. Sure. yeah it's definitely Despite- not but i feel like you know it's the kind of thing that and i've I, i've i've made this point before on things and I, I think i don't know how great of a point it is but i'm never like oh i want to put that one on right now it's never like right. the, if i'm gonna put stuff on shuffle i don't ever want to start on that song um, right, but I never skip it when it does come on. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it, you know you picked a good one. If we're going to try a, a big star tie-in, because yeah, I mean you could totally hear Alex Chilton listening to that, and the, and Chris Bell listening to that. They were both Birds fans, mm-hmm. um, so and obviously they were massive Beatles fans. Right. So, no, uh, no, yeah, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's just it's it's a landmark track uh, because of that Rickenbacker sound. I mean, yeah. it's just so good. You know, George. Yeah, and, and, and we can use this to kind of pivot towards the big star side of the discussion because, you know, I, I don't know if maybe it's something that I think about nowadays, but, like, there's a certain timbre that's shared between McCartney's vocal and Chris Bell's vocal when he's doing when he's real high and up there. some reason like on this particular song like i just hear chris's voice all over this like if if there were a song i could say like i wish big star would have covered this beatles song this would be a fantastic one um you know there's so many things that i've found as a kind of through line from the beatles to big star um you know signature drum parts are a big thing i always feel like jody's drums are like his parts are super intentional um, yeah, it's not just like, well, I'm going to play eight bars and then there's a fill and I'll make up the fill on the fly. Um, it's like everything is very, com- you know, it, it's composition versus just like jamming. And it sounds like Jody, just like it sounds like Ringo. You can yeah. tell that Ringo and you can tell that's Jody by the way he kind of staggers those little drum fills. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not a drummer, so I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but you can definitely tell it's Jody. Yeah. And, and I think. You know, I'll have to you know, one day I want to have him on on the show and, you know, find out, you know, what's the thing from Ringo that he picks up that gives a drummer that identifiable sound? Because even though, you know, the party's playing on what you're doing sounds a lot like Be My Baby. It doesn't sound like Hal Blaine. It sounds right. like Ringo. Um, right. You know, and, and it, it's definitely like there's that definitive thing that, you know, the truly great players figure out how to sound like themselves. Um, right and how to put their stamp on things yeah yeah i mean uh and beyond that i mean you know the guys grew up obviously the big star guys grew up on the beatles 
they uh, first heard the Beatles on on the radio, and so yeah, it's just all all that stuff is just was just you know born into them, and they all as soon as they all picked up instruments, it was because of the Beatles. You know, I think Chris Bell actually started playing guitar a year or two before the Beatles, like Kingston Trio type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was nothing serious, and he didn't really care about music until the Beatles. So. Um, so all that stuff that the Beatles were doing, it you know it inspired so much great music like I was saying earlier, including one of my favorite bands, yeah, Big Star. Yeah, there's just there's elements of this song that, especially in the number one record era, which is why I attribute it more to being like a Chris idea. Um, you know, the, the twelve string obviously is a big feature on that record. Um, melodically it's just it kind of moves in that same kind of way of um you know it's like an it's up tempo but it's introspective um you know there's a a tangible sense of i guess kind of um worry in the song you know it's not just like a it's not like eight days a week where it's just like, I love you so much. I'm celebrating that love with a song, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, look what you're doing. There's something wrong here. And I'm not sure right. it is, um, you know, and, th- th- and that's kind of a common thread in a lot of big star stuff and a lot of Chris stuff. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, the Beatles, when they did this, they just started smoking pot. They were hanging out with Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think also, I mean, yeah, I mean, they named the album Beatles for sale and one correlation that i think uh between the beatles and big star is i feel that them putting six covers on the beatles for sale album is a total like that's totally something alex chilton would do and, and later did. Did. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know and i think that was them at that point going oh we're gonna name this album beatles for sale i don't know i'm making you know i don't know if this is a fact but you know they felt that they were becoming a commodity you know, yes and so you know, they're like, well, hey, we feel like recording these songs that we love, mm-hmm. you know, and so they just recorded six covers and they probably just figured, hey, we need to uh, an albums do. Well, we're, we have these originals and we know these covers. Let's just, you know, let's just go and do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's a very big star. Uh, we're going to do what we feel like doing. Yeah. It's like a, like a slight sense of of jadedness. Right. You know, which I, I think that probably comes more from Alex than anybody else to some extent. But yeah. Oh, most definitely. I mean, even back, you know, Alex was jaded by 1969. 69. Yeah. Uh, when the box tops broke up. So mm. coming into Big Star, he was already jaded. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he had a hit with the letter and he just did a bunch of terrible tours where they weren't treated you know too well on the road they didn't you know the conditions weren't too well the equipment wasn't that great you know he he had a few hits but you know uh he was kind of sick of it by that point i think he thought with big star i'm gonna do this but i'm gonna do something that i only if i want to be doing it yeah and he kind of got looped into this chris bell Beatlemania type thing you know alex was in new york in 1969, 70, writing these kind of folky songs, mm-hmm. uh, El, you know, Battle of uh, El Gudo and um, 13, all these were supposed to be these little folky type songs. And he hooked up with Chris Bell, who was still, um, you know, obsessed with the Beatles, who at that point, freshly broken up. Um, 
But yeah, so Alex just kind of got sucked into this Beatles world. He he loved the Beatles, but yeah. Alex was all more into the soul music. I want to ask Chris you, I, I'm not too up to speed on Alex's opinions on the Beatles, kind of in real time. Like, yeah, I, I don't believe they had any run-ins together in the 60s when he was with the box tops. But like before that, because he's, no. he's relatively young. I mean, he's maybe 12 or 13 when they come to this, when they come to when they break America. He was he would have been 14, I think. So he's right yeah. in that prime age. But like, yeah. is he one of those kids that's like going nuts for the Beatles? Or is he like, does he always have that kind of a little too cool for school thing? And he's like, ah, maybe I like the Stones better. You know? <laughs> right. I, yeah, I, I think he was always um, he, he loved the Beatles, but he was also really into like Ray Charles mm -hmm. and jazz music because of his father. Right. Uh, Alex's dad was very influential on him. <clears throat> and that's why you don't hear Alex delving into jazz and all that stuff until later on in his career because Alex actually waited till his father passed away before he even attempted to do that stuff in oh, public wow. because he was so kind of self-conscious and worried about what his father would think about him trying to play jazz music Yeah, because his, his dad was a musician. But, you know, Alex, he liked the Beatles, and I think he kind of enjoyed the idea of, Oh, me and Chris are going to do this kind of Lennon McCartney thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he—I don't think he was too uh, thrilled with it. I mean, I think he was having fun; otherwise, he wouldn't have been doing it. Right. But he just kind of like let Chris take the reins sonically and um, overproduce all this stuff that I, I think where Alex would have normally just went and laid it down. Chris tinkered with it and tried, uh, you know, doing his Sergeant Pepper treatment on it. Yeah. <laughs> the best of his abilities, they had John Fry, their producer and the owner of Ardent Studios, you know, mixing and, and helping them along the way. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Alex was a Beatles fan, but he was also always really into soul and R&B and that whole stack scene, mm -hmm. more so than Chris was ever. Yeah. How did you first get into Big Star? Um, I mean, I first read about them. I mean, my first concert was 1995. I was 14 when I saw the REM Monster Tour. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I was an REM fan. So that was my introduction to Big Star. And what is more so, it wasn't one of those things that beat me over the head. I was like, oh, wow, this is so mind-blowing. I heard it when I was younger back then. I was like, oh, this is okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it didn't like really like blow my mind. And then I revisited it, um, a few years later and that's when, you know, that's when it hit me. Like it's, it's kind of like a, for me, it was a grower type thing. Yeah. I had to hear it a few times and I had to listen to other music and come back to it to really appreciate it. You yeah. know, cause when I first heard him, I was also, you know, I was listening to REM, the Beatles. Uh, I was really into like, you know, the whole Nirvana thing. So, you know, Big Star was just kind of like out in left field. They were, it was weird. Um, and then I heard the, the solo album, I Am the Cosmos, uh, Chris Bell, mm -hmm. that came out in 92. I didn't hear it when it first came out. I, was, I, I wasn't hip, that hip right. uh, back then. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I did hear it, um, you know, a few years later. And that's, I was honestly more drawn into big star through the Chris Bell solo album. It was just that first track. That's what really hooked me. Yeah. Um, mm, that's so and, good. That's um, interesting. I feel like, yeah. you, you know, for me, I didn't hear, I hadn't heard a big star 
until my late 20s and a, a bandmate of mine kept going, man, you've got to check this out. You're going to love this. You're going to love it. And I was like, ah, yeah, nothing's ever every time. Whenever someone builds something up like that, I'm just always prepared to be let down. Um, yeah. And I just I never like took the dive on it. And then finally, I guess it was probably around 29 or 30. Um, I finally like checked it out. It was just like, oh. Wow. And I had kind of, it was, it's that same kind of moment that you don't have too often. And like one of these times was like with the Beatles where, where it was like, this is amazing and incredible. And I feel like I've known it forever, but I've never heard it. And I'm a hundred percent into this. Um, Isn't that nice though, that you're able, it, it's almost better that it was delayed because yeah. it's like finding a, a new band. If you'd heard it years before it's uh, the newness is over, Yeah, you know? And it was it was great because it was right at the at the beginning of like kind of the initial like early 2010s kind of revival, uh, you know, yeah. with reissues coming out and the documentary and things like that. Uh, it was after Alex had passed, so all of a sudden it was like, wait, this dude lived in New Orleans where I live. Like, I could have seen him play it like a dive bar to 20 feet. God damn it. Like, yeah. Like it was so yeah. frustrating. Yeah. No, I mean, and they're totally one of those bands where you either have never heard of them or you love them or, you know, there also, there's that demographic of people who say big stars, uh, overrated, uh, whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I get it though. I mean, some people in, in, that was me early on. I mean, I didn't, hate big star i liked big star but i didn't love big star mm -hmm. so i think they are a band where you do have to listen to it a few times for it to really sink in some yeah. of them are just right off the bat i mean september girls is undeniable i mean right. if you hear that song go oh i don't hear nothing then I, we're just not gonna agree i don't know the um, heartbeat if you listen to 13 and feel nothing like you're dead inside like just <laughs> right. pack it in yeah, so you're done. Exactly. <laughs> there are some tracks that, that are like that. They have some of those real signature tunes, like 13 and stuff. Yeah. But some of it, like, it's just weird stuff. I mean, the second half of Number One Record is just this weird, depressing, um, real gloomy, you know, music. And uh, when you're, you know, 19, 20 years old, and you're listening, and I'm listening to all this crazy shit. I'm listening to, like, the Oblivions from Memphis, this trio. And that's another thing is I got I really got into Memphis music, um, mm. the Gentries, and there were there was all suddenly all these uh, you know uh, garage rock compilations of '60s and '70s garage bands out of Memphis, and so I kind of just started getting really infatuated with the city of Memphis and what happened there in the '60s and the '50s, and not only Sun Records, which I'd already loved, but I just started digging in deeper. And so Big Star was just a part of that whole thing. I mean, one of my favorite bands ever is the Compulsive Gamblers. They were in Memphis in the later 80s, 90s, and they've done some reunion shows. Um, they went on to form The Oblivions. Greg went on to form Raining Sound. Yeah. Eric, Eric Oblivion runs Goner Records there. So that whole scene, just getting involved and paying attention to what the Compulsive Gamblers were doing, and it, like you said, you kind of just start digging deeper and you start finding new pathways to new bands. And there's just so much great stuff out of Memphis aside from just Big Star. For That's sure. why um, whenever anyone, you know, talks smack about uh, about Big Star, I'm like, you know what? 
back in their era, they were not this big bluff band. They were a local band that no who, one, it, it's, it's the, the meme that's going around it. of like, um, look at quarantine, like your friend's band playing. Like, I, I gotta stay. <laughs> right. I got I got a thing. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Nobody, nobody's going to go see them. I mean, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't get arrested in the city. That's one of the, the, one of the most amazing things that I think it's amazing. And also like completely heartbreaking is the record. Uh, it's the live record where they're at, at Lafayette's. And yeah. they're like smoking live three piece band, and like they finish up a great version of something. You just hear like, yeah, like two people clap, and you're yeah. like, oh, you, you hear someone like clinking around the ice cubes. Yeah, in their cup. and I'm sitting there going like, I know that I've lived that. Like I still live that. Like holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, their they, songs are way yeah. better. <laughs> what right. shot do I have? You know. Yeah, it's 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 really weird. I mean, and there's some other bands. Uh, you know, it makes me wonder how many other bands like Big Star were out there that possibly never recorded, or if they did, it's, there's just a real, you know, a tape reel sitting somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, because yeah, they they could have they could have uh, been more, but also Big Star was kind of like not in the right time frame. Right. <laughs> they were playing the Beatles music right when you. Know, this harder proggy like Zeppelin's rock. hitting, you know? Yeah. And Alex Chillen admittedly, you know, said like, you know, as soon as Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin popped up, Alex like checked out on music. He's like, okay, I'm done. Chris actually loved Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, well, he cause he sounds like Robert Plant too. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he really, I think he appreciated the acoustic uh, mm-hmm. guitar stuff that Zeppelin would do. Andy Hummel brought that up in, uh, in an interview. Uh-oh. I thought that was a good point. Appreciate the acoustic work that they did, um, but the music they were doing was kind of out of step. I mean, right. it wasn't that hard rock. I mean, they didn't sound like Alice Cooper or the MC Five or the Stooges. Um, and it's weird; they didn't really sound. There's there's traces of the Beatles too, but you don't listen to them and go, "Oh, that's a complete Beatles ripoff." They kind of had this weird hybrid of. There's a little bit of Memphis there. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of Beatles there. There's a little bit of Birds there, and um, you know perhaps some you know some Zeppelin vocal tones. So it's just this weird hybrid where I think they were aware enough to not be complete ripoffs, you know. And I, I think that's yeah. pretty impressive. And I think that's one of the things that I really loved about them from the get go was like it's not a carbon copy of any of that, but it's like bits and pieces of everything I love about all that stuff. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Big Star is almost like if your record collection made its own record. <laughs> and it's like you're like, oh my God, it's everything I love about all these different things in like one catalog. Holy crap. You know? That's yeah. an amazing yeah, and, comparison. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, you know, and Chris uh, you know, he never stopped loving the Beatles. You know, obviously Chris was tragically uh killed mm-hmm. in a car wreck. And, but, but he, he met McCartney, though. Didn't he meet McCartney yeah, when he was over in yeah, England? Yeah, he went over to Air uh, in the mid-70s uh, with his brother, David Bell, who managed him at the time, and his drummer, Richard Roseborough, flew over there. They worked with Claude Harper, who worked um, you know, with, with the Beatles and as an engineer and doing some stuff. And then they went over and they worked with uh, Jeff Emmerich mm-hmm. as well. You know, So, I mean sergeant peppers and stuff like that so they got their foot in the door at uh strawberry studios and then they went over to air studios london and that's where they worked with jeff emmerich and they mixed um, i'm the cosmos there right or, or partial yeah. some of it i think yeah yeah so they mixed some of that stuff and then while they were there 
Chris must have been talking about the Beatles, and Jeff was like, you "Okay, I'll, I'll introduce you." <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so um, I imagine like Chris in yeah. Air Studios with Jeff Emmerich is like me in Ardent with Adam Hill. And I'm like, "Oh man, yeah. wanna, can you pull out the master tapes for uh, the Cosmos?" Or, <laughs> right. For uh, I, Radio City. I've been there, man. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I Chris uh, got to meet Paul McCartney. They just happened to be in there. I think that I forget what um, single they were working on. But David Bell said that Chris looked like he'd seen a ghost. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh, I can imagine. Yeah, and then after uh, after that, Chris said, you know, uh, you know, one down, two to go, or something like that. And David must not care about beating Ringo or something. So <laughs> um, but... <laughs> brutal. But uh, yeah, that was like a dream come true. I mean, Chris got to go over and work with Jeff Emmerich, who worked on Sgt. Pepper's and all these, you know, all the awesome Beatles records. Um, but he also was telling Jeff his ideas and not just saying, okay, we'll do what you want. Like he was working beside him and Chris became an engineer, uh, early on. He wasn't a full fledged, you know, uh, Phil Spector type guy, but Chris knew enough. He could get his way around the studio and he got in sucked into all that after Sergeant Peppers came out, you mm-hmm. know, there's Chris Bell's early days. Uh, was with the Jinx, his garage band. That was all about, they wanted to recreate Beatlemania. You know, these kids wanted to go and play these teen clubs. They wanted people to scream and shout and dance and have fun. But then when you hear Sgt. Pepper's, you can't go and play that at a teen club. Right. You, you have to go somewhere and do that. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Not even the Beatles did it, you yeah. know? Um, so that's where Chris first got intrigued by uh by the studio and he luckily got you know uh an intro to ardent studios back in 67 he was still in high school and there's very rudimentary takes of him you know there's a track called like psychedelic stuff where he's doing some like tape Mm -hmm. weird stuff and he's attempting to do stuff he hears the Beatles do, but it's it doesn't sound all that good. Yeah, <laughs> but it, was, it was him, you know, just looking beyond what he could create on stage, and he was looking at going, I want to create a, a document on record, and I want it to sound really good. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that's a definitive line. When he heard Sergeant Pepper's, he goes, "Okay, there's more to this, and there, there's an art form." to music that isn't just playing for people and screaming, you know, and getting people to cheer for you. So that was a constant battle in his life was trying to create something that I feel in in my head, I think he was thinking, I want to create something so good that someone can't tell me just get a real job.
they, I, I want to create something where they hear it and they go, wow, we can't believe you made that, Chris. That's so good. You know, we totally get why you're devoting your life to this. Because, yeah, I mean, when you're, uh, your dad is a successful restaurateur, I mean, Chris Bell's dad owned restaurant chains, uh, and he was self-made. Uh, Chris Bell's dad was not handed anything. He worked for everything. He worked his way up into a nice house in Germantown, this nice suburb in Memphis. And so then you have this hardworking blue-collar guy who came from nothing, and then you got his son who's just totally enthralled with the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he never gives it up. Yeah. You know, and he just never stops. Um, until very later on, like toward the very end of his life, he kind of started getting pulled into his dad's restaurant world, but he would always kind of like quit and get sucked back out and go back in the studio. So he never fully stopped trying to make art in the studio. And I, I find that that's something very similar to the Beatles in the latter half of their days as a band where they go, we're done going out and playing for people to scream. We want to make something that's going to last forever that we're proud of. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I think draws me to Chris's stuff on the a little bit heavier um, in that canon is like, you know, there, there's such intent on those records, whether it's number one record um, or his solo stuff, like everything is so intentional um, and it feels so carefully made that like you can't help but kind of love that about it. Um, I, like I love Radio City and I love Third. But like they're just very different albums, very different feeling. Um, you know that that sense of like of care is the same kind of way that like you know I've never I've never made a record where I didn't have virtually unlimited tracks at my disposal. Um, yeah. So being able to say like all these things that I've loved, you know, like all the production technique from Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds, all these things, like I can do that on my laptop, and like. I often like will sit there and like just overdub and overdub and overdub and overdub and redo things. Um, and you're not paying for tape reels. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's like it's the it's that element that uh, that element that I love of Beatles music that it's so carefully crafted um, that I've always appreciated. That I think is one of the things that's really drawn me to that music as well. Yeah, it's it's really amazing because when you listen to the Beatles' early stuff, like I said, I mean, I, I love it. All all their early pop stuff, the Girl I Love You, uh, you know, they're obviously singing to a, a fan base and they know what they're doing, Yeah, you know. But I think eventually, you know, they go, we're going to try harder and we're right. going to really show people what we can do. Because they could have just been – like I remember back when my sisters were – really into new kids on the block and i remember my mom going this is just like Beatlemania." yeah mm -hmm. you know and it it could have been one of those things where i mean obviously it's different but if they would have only done that early era stuff i don't think it would have had the impact that it had today you know you need both of those eras you know in the middle that middle era the rubber soul you know that little transitional period in the middle mm -hmm. um but yeah all that stuff affected different eras of big star as well i mean chris bell got started because you know all the early stuff and then he became a recording engineer because of the later stuff and i think that's true for probably a lot of people you know a lot of people probably experiment and listen to and try to recreate that stuff still to this day you yeah. know like you were saying you do it yeah 
And it's always been funny to me that like the only, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the only Beatle cover that surfaced from them is Alex doing I'm So Tired during the third sessions, right? I'm so tired I haven't slept a wink I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I get up and fix myself a drink No, no, no I would say so. And even that's a yeah, kind they, of a, a tough list. They would cover them. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, they would cover the Beatles back, Chris, Jody, and Andy, right before Big Star had a band called Ice Water. And so they would cover the Beatles and mm-hmm. cover free, some of that 70s rock stuff. And of course, the Jinx, Chris Bell's Garage Band would do Beatles stuff. You know, he, he said in one of the interviews, one of the few interviews Chris Bell ever did, that you know, kids would walk up and say, um, you know, uh, what's that? What's the James Brown song? You know, they'd say, "I play, uh, I feel fine," or what? What the hell is that? I song? feel good. I feel good, and yeah. then but they'd play the Beatles song instead, kind of a thing. So <laughs> they were they were very. Um, they were very into the Beatles stuff. And I guess in Memphis back in the sixties, eventually even right after Beatlemania, there was a strong move towards stacks being really big there. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden like Beatles stuff was kind of like, uh, we're really into stacks and Motown. Like the Beatles were still big, but the kids wanted to dance to stacks and Motown stuff. They didn't want to show up and, and dance to the Beatles and Chris, his bands, you know, he would insisted on, they played the Brit rock stuff. Yeah, You know, they never abandoned that. They could have been doing walking the dog and all that stuff and playing to please the crowd, but they would show up and do all like, they'd try to sound like Jimi Hendrix at the school dances and stuff. And they try to sound like, you know, the Beatles to the best of their abilities. Um, And people would like boo them off the stage or like leave or not pay attention. They didn't care. They just wanted to get up there and make noise. And they were always really into British rock and, that's something that you know funneled through all his entire catalog, which yeah. isn't a huge catalog, but it's a really good catalog. Indeed, music. indeed. And that, like, that one of the things I love is like when I started playing Big Star stuff for you, uh, Julia. You were initially you were into it, but I think it wasn't until you watched the documentary that you were like the yeah, whole story definitely. sucked you in. Yeah, absolutely. Like you played it, I was like, oh, this is nice, and you were like, no, this is amazing, and I'm like, it's <laughs> fine, relax, and you're like, no. <laughs> This is the greatest. And I'm like, okay. And then the documentary came out and you're like, we're watching it. And I'm like, okay, I like a good music documentary. And then I was like, this is amazing. Everyone should listen to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, th- they did a great job. I'm, I just talked to uh, Danielle and Drew, two of the filmmakers, two two or three days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be on an upcoming episode of My Stupid Podcast. Uh, but they did a great job. I mean, they – went to memphis and you know drew moved to memphis (laughs) from new york uh where he was living at the time and they you know they really dug in deep and they found a lot of the people connected to the big star circle Mm -hmm. you know uh like the van Deren, who uh you know he's in the documentary he's another you know memphis uh singer songwriter people say he's power pop i know he doesn't like that being called that but you know you listen to van Deren, and i mean you can't deny the Paul McCartney influence oh, yeah. and uh, 
and Van Duren, his two new records were or two new reissues were just put out by Omnivore. His you know 1970s era records, his first two albums, they're just brilliant. So yeah, there's this little subculture in Memphis where they were like Beatles devotees, but it wasn't a big thing. I mean, you live yeah. in Memphis and there's stacks there. You know, that's eclipsing anything. You know, that was the mm-hmm. you know so these kids playing Beatles influenced stuff. Uh, nobody cared. You know, I talked to Terry Manning who worked at Ardent, played in bands with Chris and stuff. And I asked him, I was like, hey, you know, did anyone ever notice Big Star or say, hey, these kids are writing some good songs? And Terry Manning's like, do you think the people over at, you know, Stax or anywhere gave a shit what these like prep school kids were up to? Like nobody <laughs> cared. Yeah. Nobody cared, you know? And they're, for the most part, they were a studio band. I mean, they played a handful of gigs at, you know, and they weren't too good, you know, live. They were more of a studio creation. They weren't terrible, but from what I hear, they were, you know, they didn't sound like what they sound like on record, mm-hmm. you know. I heard that later on when Big Star reformed with Ken and John from the Posies, that that sounds more like Big Star than back in the day. <laughs> I think that I think that frustrated Chris, yeah. you know. I, I think Chris wanted it to sound better, and I think it was probably disappointing for him to show up and have it not be everything that he wanted to be and it didn't sound like what it sounded like in his head or yeah. what he created at Ardent Studios either. Yeah. And of course they, they broke up right after that tour anyway. Mm-hmm. And Chris had, you know, a kind of a, a you know, a, a breakdown and was clinically, you know, you know, hospitalized for a while and it wasn't a good situation. And he went solo and Big Star carried on without him. His own band, you yeah. know, goes on without him. Yeah. And makes two more you know, two more amazing albums, you know, and like people always say, all three of those albums are in the top 500 greatest albums of all time list at Rolling Stone. And I don't want to say that, that means anything too much, but I think it, it does, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, you know, uh, for some little band who barely played any shows and never had any fans until 20 or 30 years later to have all of your records, you know, you know, uh, a claim like that. It's, it's pretty weird. It's, it's a bizarre story. Oh, it totally that the is. documentary did a great <clears throat> job of really laying it out and saying, this is why this music is interesting. And, you know, and here's some reasons why you should take a closer look or listen a little bit harder. Yeah. You know, they sure. really helped after that movie. It was a, a definitive boom for them. I was writing the book already when they were working on that film. Um, and uh, I remember thinking, like, wow, this is so crazy. You know, like, yeah. I almost, like, didn't even want to put out the uh, put out the book. I was like, is anyone going to need this stupid book that I'm working on, you know, <laughs> after the movie came out? And uh, But luckily, they, they ended up giving me a lot of the raw interview footage from that. Oh, so nice. um, that beefed up my book quite a bit because a lot of people in the Big Star family had passed away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to talk to the people myself, but um unfortunately they passed away after they were interviewed for that document right so um yeah that documentary did a lot to preserve and save the history of the band not only in that film but in in my book that i worked on which is an oral history and i'm not patting myself on the back about it it's fantastic um, it is a fantastic uh, read i will say that well thank you um and it all has to do with the the people who had great memories you know it's written in an oral history format for the most part i add in chapter intros and little uh transitions throughout the way just to kind of nudge it along it reminded me a lot of the beatles anthology book because that's very much their oral history with like chapter intro things like that transitional pieces 
Right, yeah. right, yeah. And I, w- I just wanted it, uh, you know, the f- the people who were there to say it in their own voice. And Adam Hill from Ardent was the guy early on. I sent him over a chapter just laid out, you know, in oral history just because I hadn't written it yet. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, dude, you should just do it like this, man. This is awesome. Nice. And I was like, you know, I could do an oral history. And then so I was like, this works. And, you know, you're talking to all these Memphis prep school kids they're all really good talkers, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it was, it just all flowed together perfectly, but you know, I did other research. I, I dug in, I, you know, found paperwork, David Bell offered up receipts from studios and I got dates. I got exact times they flew in. So like in my transitions, that's where I kind of like plug in the nerd stuff. Like, do you want to know exactly which date they landed at you know Heathrow in London, and then when they came back, I kind of just almost. I bet I think my editor even said like, "Do you need this stuff?" And I'm like, "It's staying in there." You have no <laughs> idea how hard I had to dig to get this stuff. Yeah, you know, and there's no other timeline of uh, Big Star that details them like that by by the day. It's not like the Beatles where every day is accounted for at a certain point yeah. in their oh, career. Yeah. yeah, and there's it's like. Amazing. 47 people who if they find out you had that information and didn't put it in the book will come for you <laughs> yeah they'll be messaging me on facebook about it but yeah i mean the beatles anthology that, that was a big one for me back they, that came out when i was in high school and that yeah. just blew my mind i yeah. mean that uh that's amazing and i they i think they should do those on like more bands i mean why doesn't the yeah. beach boys have something like that or you know they They've can cut got off a few i mean there, they but, they did one it's it's not as in-depth and long um back in the early mid 90s and it's very um it's very dated already like when it came out it's not all like, the are. best yeah um I've, yeah i've watched all the beach boys documentaries and then don was did one it's like a black and white one mm-hmm. brian yeah and none of them are all that comprehensive right um it's hard because it those stories yeah. are so long now you know Um, And I think that's one of the great things about the big star story is like it fit perfectly into that time frame uh, because there was a beginning and an end. And granted, there was another beginning and an end, but it was able to like they they wove that time frame really well. You know, whereas like with with the Beatles, like they were only, you know, they had a finite time as well. But God, could you imagine, like, had they gotten back together, how long the anthology would have been, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, right. Well, can you imagine the Beach Boys anthology when you get to the disc about, like, the 80s? Oh, God. I mean... It's the least played you know, disc in the anthology series. <laughs> don't get me wrong, man. When I was a kid, I loved Kokomo, man. It was I'm everywhere, gonna, man. I'm not, not going to lie. I Couldn't mean, deny uh, it. I would, but now, obviously, uh, that's not my go-to <laughs> right. choice for, for Beach Boys stuff. Um, As always, fuck Mike Love. Yes. Right. <laughs> well done. High five. He <laughs> get much worse. Um, <laughs> have you seen his, like, the Hall of Fame induction speech oh, that he did? brutal. It's so bizarre. It's hard. What it's, a dick. It's hard, to, it's hard to watch. Have you seen um, that one? No. Oh, God. He basically, like, he gets up to speak and he's, like, real cocky looking. Uh, always. And he starts, like, calling out other people about how, like, the Stones never want to follow the Beach Boys because they're not as good a live band as the Beach Boys. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he writes songs <laughs> yeah. just as good as McCartney and, like, it's real the shitty. Whole, the whole room is, like, 
it's just like not going over well either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wouldn't imagine. It's really. He's just got up there and like shit talked everyone. It's really uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, Big Star, I mean, there was a Beach Boys connection there. I mean, Alex obviously toured with the Beach Boys and he loved the Beach Boys. Yeah. So, and he covered, uh, oh, what song did he cover on that third box set? Don't Worry Baby. Don't worry, baby, man. That's that was my favorite. One of my favorite things on that complete third was hearing yeah. him do that Beach Boys. I was like, wow, he could have been a fucking Beach Boy, man. Oh, like yeah. throw Alex Chilton in there. Um, it, it was really amazing to hear, and uh, yeah. So th- it, that's another part of the Big Star equation where Alex liked the vocal harmonies of the Beach Boys, and he uh, was at the house with Charles Manson. Yeah, <laughs> when, and that's such a Charles weird Charles. story. <laughs> Yeah, Bill Cunningham from the box tops was there too. Wow. You know, uh, I remember like asking him, like, oh, I heard Alex Chilton was there that night with, you know, Manson. He's like, I was there too. And I left because they were so weird. <laughs> oh my God. I, I guess like the Manson followers came up to Alex and like forced him to walk to the store to buy him cigarettes or something, something weird. Like they, they were doing these weird power moves to someone they knew was like a rock star. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that's just another part of the big star story. That's just weird. It's so like there's weird. a Carl Manson <laughs> star connection. It's, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's a bizarre story, but it was, it was, it was fun to write that. Um, you know, I would have loved to write something about the Beatles, but you know, what else is there to do? You know, yeah. it's already, there's so much written almost, about him. Yeah. Yeah. I keep waiting for the Beatles anthology to show up on Netflix. I think I if they put that on there, I mean, I think, it would be through the roof after you know, seeing I don't know like the the reception that the uh, the multi part Chicago Bulls documentary got last right. year, which or this year, which was phenomenal. I can't, I don't see why this isn't the, the anthology is not on Netflix. Mm. Right? Yeah, I think it would do wonders for them, but they're they're very weird about their catalog. I they mean, are. Uh, so it, who knows? But I I think. Um, they, Paul, they should if you're listening put the anthology on netflix <laughs> or maybe don't because yeah. then i'll have to watch it we know you're mm. listening <laughs> we know you're right. listening I, I look at our analytics i see where the, <laughs> right. where the plays come from in the uk yes. i know you're listening yes. minx. <laughs> but yeah so yeah without the you know without the anthology though that's another thing that kind of like pushed me deeper into the fandom so just like the big star doc that for me that the anthology was something that really kind of was like wow now i know the entire story and i started buying more albums albums uh from you know from all eras at that point as yeah. well so yeah the the documentary for big star did the same thing for a lot of people so i was just telling danielle and drew who produced the big star doc that you know they pretty much gave them another you know another life cycle david bell chris's older brother told me he's like every few years something happens with big star and i always think well that's the end of it you know like back when uh they put out that 45 in 1978 he thought that'd be the last thing and then nothing happened till 1992 then they put out chris bell's i'm the cosmos and reissued the big star records he's like okay well that's the end of that then a few years later something else happens and they reissue cosmos again then they put out a documentary and they put out a complete box set. So it's just kind of like staggering thing that slowly happened over 40 years. Um, and it's it's kind of a, you know, it's better than nothing. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. it's sad that Kristen wasn't around for it, but uh, Alex was, and I'm not sure. Uh, there's varying degrees of whether Alex 
cared or not. Uh, yeah. You know, depending on what day it was and what mood you caught him in. Right. You know, people often say that Alex Chilton didn't care about Big Star. He didn't like the music. And, and even people who say, I know him well and I played with him very, you know, and I know him better than anyone here. And they were his friends. But then other people who were also his friends would tell me they'd catch him on one day after he smoked a joint and he would just start reminiscing about you know that was a time I, where i learned a lot it was a, i really liked playing in big star we had a lot of fun they listened to the beatles second album tons that was one that they really loved yeah apparently um and he would reminisce about that and so he was fond of, of the big star music even though you know alex had a, a tough shell man sure. you know it, he had a sad story i mean he found his brother drown in the bathtub yeah when he was a kid yeah. uh, and i think that really affected him and it gave him this kind of protective barrier where he didn't really share too much with a lot of people he was he was a weird dude um mm. but very talented yeah um, but also like but he's he human and i think that we all have a tendency to do that you know look at right. different parts of our lives and one day we'll be like man fuck that guy and right. then the next day yeah. you'll be like oh i kind of miss him <laughs> you know like yeah. it's it's easy to like you know hindsight is 2020 kind of thing you know like or make something black or black and white it's right and there and might white. be some parts of big star that he's like oh i wish we hadn't done that and some parts of like being in the studio with john fry and chris bell you know for hours on end tinkering and doing all the things that they did and he's like man that was that was some real good shit yeah. <laughs> mm. say my love for you You don't know how real it feels All I want to do Is to spend some time with you So I can hold you Hold you Your sister says that I think the thing with Alex was it made him uncomfortable when people had fanboys. So, like, if you walked up to Alex and you talked to him about other stuff, he would be fine. Yeah. If you walked up to him and said, oh, man, I love Big Star, he wouldn't, like, he would literally turn around and just walk off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
he had like zero tolerance for that. I think like he knew even back then, life is too short to like listen to people tell me how great this music is. You know, like mm-hmm. I, it, I think it made him uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, people tell me that he was uh, a little bit weird about it because he knew that a lot of it was Chris Bell's sonic kind of like vision. So like he didn't want to get patted on the back about some of the stuff where he's like, well, that wasn't even really my idea anyway. So I think, but just in general, he wasn't a guy where he, he wouldn't suffer the fool, you know? Uh, right. He, and he wouldn't uh, listen to, to fan people either. You know, for, that was just one thing he didn't like. There's a YouTube video of him signing records in like 1994. <clears throat> and uh, he's just being like, you know, they ask him, so are you going to play another show? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Like, I mean, like, he's <laughs> like so totally just not into to buying, you know, buying into like his own hype. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm like, hey, will you sign this? He's like, if you keep buying them, I'll keep signing them. And like, <laughs> I was like, not being serious. He was just so, um, you know, he's he just was not attached to wanting to hear about how great he was. And right. Uh, it, that's kind of a, a cool thing, and but he did in turn keep that torch alive for Big Star and Chris Bell. So mm-hmm. throughout the '80s and '90s, when Alex would play and when Big Star reformed, you know that would reintroduce and remind people that Chris Bell existed. So I, I you know, in a roundabout way, he always kept the torch going for Big Star, whether he liked it or not. Right. You know? Yeah. I think one of the one of the kind of the blessings to having come to the catalog after it's you know, full completion, you know, like after Alex passed, uh, is it kind of put it in the same realm for me as coming to the Beatles when I was younger in the eighties, cause things were done. John was gone at that point. It was over. Um, there, right. there was no new music to come out. There was no reunion album. Um, and I feel like, you know, had I been into the band when in space dropped in Oh five, you know, once they had reunited and did another record, you know, would that have changed my perspective on things? Yeah. Or would I have just kind of brushed the album aside? Whereas like had the Beatles done a reunion album and it not been everything you wanted it to be. Cause it never can be, you know, right. like, well, you know, I mean, the, 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 closest <laughs> thing, the closest thing we had to that was, um, when they did free as the bird and real love, right. When they shoot that stuff on the anthology stuff, I remember thinking like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I get to like have these like new Beatles singles. Like yeah. I had the, the, the CD single and uh, I was just thinking, you know, recently too, uh, you know, I'm a big Tom Petty, Tom Petty fan. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like in high school, it was really cool. Like I got to, you know, wildflowers was a big album for me back in high school. And I remember being like kind of happy that while I was in, still in high school in my youth, I got to enjoy like a really good Tom Petty record. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, you know, okay, later on it was just completely terrible. And uh, it was something you got to enjoy in the moment. So, yeah. So in space, I, you know, I kind of consider that more so of an Alex Chilton uh, solo record with touches of big star in there too. I mean, obviously you have John and Ken and Jody doing their input, mm-hmm. but you know, they didn't approach that like a big star. Right? Yeah, it's a very different Alex, situation. Alex wouldn't have allowed that. You yeah. know, if they would have said, hey, let's go in there and try to recreate big star, he would have laughed and said, no. Like, yeah. I, from what I hear, every day that they showed up, they were just hoping Alex would show up. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if they would have said, hey, we're going to try recreating the magic of what happened. I, from what I gather, and I don't know because I didn't know Alex, but I, he was not a nostalgic guy. 
mm-hmm. and he was not ever trying to like conform or do something just for the sake because he thinks people would like it. Yeah, he would do it if he was having fun in the moment doing it. Um, in you know, in space, he was doing what he wanted to be doing at, at that exact moment. Back in the seventies with Big Star, he wanted to be doing that, but after th- that was done. He moved on. I mean, he put out Like Flies on Sherbert and some of those solo records, uh, which were great. I mean, Alex Chilton, Like Flies on Sherbert is uh, one of my is my favorite Alex Chilton solo record. And it just sounds like hell. You know, it's just weird. It's a challenging listen. You know, I, it is. I, I was we were talking about this earlier. I think, you know, if you're looking at Chris and Alex and kind of their their paths, I think Chris always kind of stayed on the McCartney route of things and. Alex took the more difficult side of what John did. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, yeah, definitely Chris would be the Paul and Alex would be the John where I think if John were lived on, he would have been doing some weird experimental DJ. Like, you know, like I could have seen him doing some pretty amazing stuff in the eighties or terrible. I don't know. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, like that Chris, it's like that Chris rock joke. Uh, you know, if Tupac lived, he would have either been the president of the United States or starring in Tyler Perry movies. Who knows? You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. <laughs> the same thing goes for John Lennon. I mean, he could yeah. have put out some, you know, with the technology and stuff, he could have done some really great stuff or it could have sounded really dated and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, we could have gotten the 80s know. version of what's the new Mary Jane. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, and so that, that with Alex, I mean, people you is know, that temporary uh, secretary though. <laughs> oh no! Yikes. That's a classic right there. Um, Love you, Paul. Love you, mean it. Now he's never going to be on the show. That's his favorite he, song. He just <laughs> turned the episode off. Right. Out. But yeah. So, but it, in short, I guess what I'm saying is like, uh, you know, Alex never, you know you know conformed and i think that's a very big star thing because they weren't conforming back then either so people talk smack about alex doing these r&b and jazzy type covers and they make fun of him for doing valare and all that stuff but uh it's just him doing what he always did which is exactly what he wanted and chris did the same thing they were kind of like real rebellious in that fact where like they could have been playing what was hip at the time but they stuck to that love of, you know, they took that Beatles sound and warped it through Led Zeppelin and the Kinks and the Birds and uh, out came Big Star. And yeah. luckily they did. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's put a full circle on this. Uh, so thinking back to what you're doing at number 192, have you ever tried to rank all the Big Star songs? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> um, wow. You know that that's a that's a good that's a good thing. That might be that might be a that. podcast. We should talk about that. There you go. So yeah, there's. I mean, yeah. The, where would India song go? I like India song, man. I enjoy people that tune. People give that a rough time. They I don't do. think it's as bad. As I think that's one yeah. of the best Mellotron tracks I've ever heard. It, it's fantastic. Right. I really like. You know. Well, then there's also people who, uh, you know, uh, you know, they'll hate on certain songs like Pet Sounds. What's the the, the cover song? Um, Sloop John B. Yeah. Some people don't like that. I love that song. I think I, I kind of look at that as going, there's this song, this, there's this album full of love songs and there's this weird kind of like dream sequence. That's just, it, you know, it's like in the middle, kind of like, you know, it lightens the air and that's kind of like the India song. It's that oddball yeah. song. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it'd be tough for me to rank those cause it's definite 
mood that you're in. I mean, when you're listening to third, you're not uh, throwing that on. That's not a Friday night party album. (laughs) No, that'd scare people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So thinking about what you're doing at number 192, how do we feel about that placement? Too high, too low, just right. Um, out of how many, how many, how many? 223. Okay. Mind you, the Um, long and winding road. We dropped that like seven weeks ago or eight weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. That, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. It's so hard because they, they wrote so many good songs. I mean, I, I'm sure other people have said that on this show. Yeah. But uh, I guess the only reason that you would perhaps bump it up would be that Rickenbacker sound that would be so influential on, on the birds. And then the birds influence so many bands. Mm-hmm. Um, the birds are like that low-key band that like – you know, I, I don't know. They don't get as much love as what I think they should these days. Yeah, definitely. You know? Definitely. Um, so I, I think it's probably justifiable. I mean, you know, there's just so many other good songs. The, the only thing that I think would bump it up a few notches would be that jangly, birdsy sound. Yeah. Julia? I think it's pretty good. Pretty good? I don't think I'd debate you on this placement too much. Good. It's okay. <laughs> I don't feel like arguing tonight. Yeah. Awesome. It's fine. What, where does it rate on the list of best guitar solos? Ooh. It's not I up mean, there. Uh, according <laughs> to me. A, I, I'm right, going to agree. Right. It's not a great solo. It's not a great solo. Would it be dead last? Let, let's put... Let's. No. I wouldn't put it there. Because there's a couple where George like pulls some real clunkers. I feel like the there was one super recently, and I was just like, ah, oh, the solo, ah, oh. but I can't think of what it was. I don't remember. I'll think of it at like yeah. 2 a.m. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, wake me up, we'll come down, we'll fire everything up, and we'll, oh, perfect. we'll stick it in there. At 2 a.m. Yeah. yeah. Right. Sounds like a good plan. There you go. I think it's a good placement. Um, there's so many other brilliant songs, but uh, it's definitely one where... Yeah, you can hear Tom Petty and all those other guys who just took that sound and ran with it and made millions of dollars. Yeah, because you don't yeah. hear that a lot in like the singles, like the no. big, like the big famous Beatles singles, are not the ones that you hear like bits and pieces of in other bands. I feel like I feel like it's the album right. tracks that the people, the musicians who really love this this kind of stuff, mm. took little inspirations from mm-hmm. and they go, culminated okay. into. They go, hey, what's that? What's that sound? Oh, that's one of those Rickenbackers. I'm gonna get one of those. Yep, yep. Like saying, you know, there's the birds. You know. Yep. Well, it's, it's easier to steal from the lesser known stuff because no right. one will call you out on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I mean, they see it. You know, you see it in a Hard Day's Night. You hear it on that record. It's very prevalent across Hard Day's Night and Beatles for Sale. But I think you know, on this kind of track, it's really a bit more of a standout thing on its own. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. So. And Paul's voice is just so good. It's so good. So, yeah. It's so it's like that it's soulful in a way where it's not, you know, uh some Brit rocker trying to soul it up. It's a very soulful rock <laughs> voice. You know, it, it's it's just so good. Yeah. Um so yeah, I, I think it's uh perfectly placed though. You you did a good uh good placement. Thank you, my friend. Rich, you got All time right. for a couple of rapid fire questions before we let you go? I'll I'll try, man. All right, cool. Rapid fire. You ready? Uh, oh, oops, oh. <laughs> sorry. Um, you ready for it? Yeah. Fire! 
<laughs> is that right? That's close enough. Every time I ask you, I'm like, is that right? Because I never remember. I'm trying to get her to, to do a rapid fire theme song. We'll get there. <laughs> All right, rapid fire th- question number one: Your favorite Beatles song? Um, I'm gonna say, and I'm this is contradicting my earlier love of all the early stuff. Sure. And this is a very middle of the road, basic fanboy, uh, not even fan, but a day in the life. It, it doesn't get much better than that. I think mm. that's a spot on choice. My friend, your least yeah. favorite Beatles song. Um, wow. What's the episode that you did with Adam? Uh, the 12 Mr. Moonlight. Uh, no, the other one, 12, uh, 12, 12 bar, 12 bar original. Yes, I'll take that one. I had forgotten that existed until you guys talked about it, so yeah. that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, favorite Beatles album? Um, ooh, Rubber Soul. I love it. Love it. Uh, yeah. Your favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Um, Going to the store and buying that first uh, rock and roll music volume one. I remember my my aunt took me to uh, whatever department store, and I remember going and telling the clerks that I wanted a Beatles tape. And uh, I think it kind of set the entire path of of my life for better or for worse. <laughs> nice. So I remember I pr- specifically remember looking at you know uh, all the tapes, and I picked that one because I thought they looked cool uh, on the front. So, yeah, and it was uh, – I listened to that, and it helped shape – I mean, I was really lucky that I got into the Beatles so early yeah. because it saved me from liking so much terrible music that came out during – I mean, you were there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the 90s and 2000s. Did you guys get the new Smash Mouth? Oh, my God. Right. It, it was bad. And yeah. I remember, like, someone came up to me, and they're like, hey, do you like Smash Mouth? They sound like the Doors. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, I realized they were saying that because I had an organ. An I'm organ like, does no. not make you sound like the Doors. <laughs> no. So, yeah, th- that moment of buying that first cassette tape and also seeing Paul McCartney in concert. I yeah. Mean, it was, uh, you know, if you squint your eyes. Uh, and what was most surprising about seeing Paul in concert was I was really excited. I've only seen him once. It was a few years ago. Um, and I thought it'd be the Beatles stuff, but uh, watching him do Band on the Run was like so the, good. the top moment. Yep. And I was so like, I, it was so weird that like that was the, the song where I was like, that was the, the best thing I've ever seen in my entire. Watching Paul do that was amazing. Because the song is amazing. It's a great yeah. song. Yeah. I, I'm just yeah, like, I mean, I'm beside myself. I'm like, yes, I know that feeling because I had the right. same reaction. Like, I definitely jumped out of my seat and was like, yes! Yeah, and just the way it moves. I mean, you know, how that song just moves into all these different mm-hmm. areas. I mean, I'm always, I wish I was a musician and I wish I knew how to do that. And I wish more people would do those really dramatic you know, rock and roll changes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it, it touches on so many different levels all in one song. So seeing, you know, buying that tape and then obviously seeing a Beatle play that stuff. And I had really good tickets too. I got press passes. Oh, nice. Normally they put, normally they put you way up in like the nosebleeds, but for some reason they gave, gave uh, Nicole and I like fourth row. It was amazing. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What a, it was so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you want to do the alternate rapid fires that I have up here? You got one, two, and three. Oh. 
So we don't normally do oh, personalized rapid like, fires, <laughs> but I feel like we have to. <laughs> I'm like, I can't see that far. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so alternate rapid fire, your favorite Big Star song. Ooh, my favorite Big Star song would have to be... Ooh, that is a tough one. Ah. Probably, let's say, Feel. Yes. Mm, rock nice. and roll. Rock and roll. Yeah. What about your least favorite? Um, probably the Nat King Cole cover on third. What's that? Uh, Nature Boy? Yeah. Yeah. I like it, but it's like, eh. eh. You yeah. know? Eh. It just comes and goes. Right. Yeah. Now, about- I don't hate it. But I don't hate it, but I would never, like you said, I wouldn't skip that one first. Yeah. Know? You don't want your playlist to start out with that one. Right. And I think, you know, but third, <laughs> third is a different beast. I mean, oh, that was yeah. Alex in the studio kind of just, you know, dicking around. Uh, it was, uh, so who knows whether he even intended that to be on the damn record. Yeah. Uh, so there's that one. And then, you know, yeah, the, there's very few songs where they, they have very few stinkers. They didn't record too much. So right. mm-hmm. it's, the, you know, the beautiful <laughs> part about having a, a small discography is right. very few clunkers. Right, right. What's your favorite Big Star album? Um, in Space. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jody. Uh, you know, that album, that album it's, it's... I it's, enjoy that record. It, it's not fair to compare that to Big Star Records is what I think. You know, I think if they would have just said that was an Alex and Jody record, it would have been a better idea. Um, but... Um, so the, the least favorite album, is that what you're saying? Oh, your favorite. Your favorite. favorite. Okay. favorite. I'm yeah. sorry. I started making fun of In Space. <laughs> um, I mean, I would have to say number one record. It has Chris Bell and Alex on it. You hear them working off of each other. Um, and, you know, Radio City has equally good songs, but those songs would have been even better if Chris would have been there. Yeah. So number one record is just weirder. It's, I think you know, I'm 100% with you on this. Yeah, so it, it, number one record has the rockers, it has the mid-tempo stuff, it has the ballad 13, and then it kind of sinks like a ship in the night into this weird abyss of just like sadness. Uh, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really sequenced, really weird. Mm-hmm. They put all the bummers at the end of it. It's almost like they didn't put much thought into going, well, let's stagger these throughout this. Or maybe they did. Maybe they thought, hey, we want this to trail off into nowhere into sadness and if they did it worked you know i love it <laughs> man this is fantastic rich do me a favor if you would tell all of our listeners about your fantastic book there was a light that has just gotten its second pressing correct yeah um so yeah now it's widely available the first edition was on hozak books which it was an amazing edition really nice quality it was, had a really cool cover on there um but uh, this new edition is now it's widely available. So it's available through Simon and Schuster and it's out there everywhere. It's an oral history. So uh, if you like reading like, you know, please kill me is like a punk rock oral history. Um, there's another oral history called Detroit rock city. My buddy Steve wrote that. So there's other oral histories. I didn't invent the format, but it's all <laughs> just verbatim memories and anecdotes from people in memphis they're in some of their fans ex-girlfriends people in the scene Mm -hmm. um 
So I tried talking to literally everybody, and Adam Hill from Ardent made sure I did. He would help me find people. If I would slack off on getting in touch with someone, he would text me, have you talked to this person yet? So I had support from Adam, and I had support from Ardent Studios, and Chris Bell's family. And I kind of just luckily got the blessing of John Fry right before he passed away. Mm -hmm. um, and John Fry introduced me to so many uh, people who were never interviewed about Big Star before, like one of Chris Bell's friends, Earl Smith. That was Chris Bell's, one of his best friends. Earl had passed away, but I tracked down Earl's wife who was around and got to watch Chris and Earl hang out. And so I got the person who was the fly on the wall. So I tried getting a lot of the fly on the wall people who mm. they weren't just playing music. If you talk to musicians, they're going to want to talk about music. You know, if you talk to Jody, he's talking about being in the studio and drums and uh, to write a book, you need more than that. You need to find out who these people are. Yeah. So I tried finding high school friends. You know, I found a person who worked with Chris at Danvers, the fast food restaurant that he worked at. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, he'd watch Chris, you know, flipping burgers and stuff. And so I tried my best to do um, an accurate portrayal of Chris Bell and before it was published, I would literally wake up in the middle of the night and be, like, terrified. Like, I was so worried when it came out that Chris Bell's family was going to read it and go, this is totally wrong. This Aww. doesn't seem anything like my brother. Um, or, like, Jody would read it and go, what the hell is this, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I remember hearing that Jody didn't like that the Cramps footage made it into the Big Star documentary. Like, he was, like, kind of upset about it. Like, he thought it was unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So I was very on edge and worried. But uh, luckily, <laughs> Chris Bell's family really embraced it. They framed a picture of the book and hang it up at their restaurant. Oh, I still talk Aww. with David. I talk with Jody, and I talk with fans and uh, you know friends like you. And uh, it's it's really gratifying because you don't do it for the money. I right. spent more on uh, buying old zines and bootlegs and records. Like I spent more money on this book than I'll ever make on the book, and that's <laughs> completely fine. Right. Uh, but you just want people to like it because it would really suck to lose money on it, spend five years on it, and then have it suck. Yeah. So I think uh, the fact that um, I kind of let everyone tell the story themselves. And mm -hmm. I, so I took the back seat. You know, I wasn't trying to spin it through my own narrative. I let the people there tell it, and uh, people liked that. And sometimes it's conflicting. Someone would say something like, hey, this happened this way. Then the next quote would be like, Actually, no, that didn't even happen that way. This happened this way. So there's, it, it tells it from a few different angles. So it was a lot of fun to put together. One of the, the, thing, the thing I really appreciated about is it, it, like a lot like the documentary, it very much humanizes these characters that you only know through their music and through their records. Cause like I was never alive during their time, you know? And so they've always existed as kind of like these ghosts from the past. Um, yeah. And so to actually like get like that real human perspective, I think was really and that was, a great that was treat, really, you know, and that was really hard too. I mean, I'm like you, I mean, I'm a kid of the eighties and nineties. I was not alive in the seventies. I was not alive in the sixties. I yeah. mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up in Memphis. So that was another thing I was worried about that people from Memphis would read this and go, look at this Michigan hayseed thinking right. he's going to write about Memphis music. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, get lost. And I kind of, you know, got, you know, I had a few people just like hang up on me, like Ross Johnson. I tried calling him twice, hung up wow. on me. I know, you know, um, 
I don't know whether he was just, you know, he, he played with Alex a lot. I think he probably heard Alex go and don't talk to reporters. I, I don't know what it was. Yeah. But um, most people were really great. And I really poured over trying to understand what was it like to be alive in Memphis in the 60s and 70s. And what was that like? You know, I talked to people like Robert Gordon, who wrote It Came From Memphis, and he's a historian. Um, and I wouldn't just ask about Big Star. I'd ask about what was Germantown like back then? Uh, what was Memphis like back then? Um, and, you know, hey, Alex Chilton went to the first integrated school, you know, and like uh, I tried getting some of that political climate in there because it was a weird time, you mm-hmm. know, much like now. <laughs> right. Uh, it was there's a lot of unrest. It was just a, a weird time. So I try my best to really tell how it was to be a Memphis kid who was in a rock band who was taking these weird pills and getting a little too high <laughs> and you know all these emotions that they had going on. Mm-hmm. And in closing, <laughs> I think that's the one thing that people should understand about Big Star is that. You know, there's a lot of drama tied up in the breakup and Chris Bell and rumors about this and that and uh, relationships involving the band. And what you have to remember is they were all like early 20s. And so, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing in a band and you're best friends with someone and then all of a sudden your best friend becomes best friends with someone else, that's like the world to yeah. you. Everything you know what I mean? Changes, like, yeah so betrayed and it's just so so much more intense whereas now if someone blows me off i'm like oh good i I get to stay home and watch tiger king or whatever the hell it's called (laughs) like great go ahead and blow me off i don't care but when you're that age they were just so emotional they were all so passionate and um and they were all you know trying to do what they heard the beatles doing and Mm -hmm. i think you know like uh mike mills from rem said like they didn't get up to beatles level but they recorded something that, like, bands like R.E.M. and these other, you know, teenage fan club heard Big Star and go, well, we can't do what the Beatles did. That's impossible. But we could probably do what Big Star did. Yeah. And so it gave R.E.M. something to shoot for. Mike Mills almost verbatim said that. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty impressive. I mean, for being a bunch of no-name guys in a band that had no fans, Mike Mills helped you know, REM's one of the most successful, influential alternative rock bands of all time. And, blue, you know, the blueprint is big stars. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And where can people get this book at? Because I want everyone to go buy it because it's fantastic. Oh, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, with the, with, the, with the quarantine now, I would say, I don't know, don't go to a store. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I would say you can order it off of Amazon and all the usual soul-sucking places. Um, <laughs> if you can buy it from your local record store, I would say attempt to get it from your local bookstore or your local record store first. Fantastic. A lot of times, like, local bookstores can order something for you. Yeah. Right. Like get them to order. Yeah. It's not going to be in stock unless it's uh, Lansing, where I live, or Memphis. You know, if you're in Memphis, you can find it. If you're in where I live, <laughs> you can find it. If not, it's definitely a special order. This is a very niche book. You know? <laughs> but not, not a New York Times bestseller. I right? cannot recommend it enough. Even just, you know, stepping outside of being a fan of the band, if you enjoy uh, if you enjoy biographies and music documentaries, things of that nature, this is one of the best books I've read in that uh, in that music bio category in a long, long time. And what about oh, your well, podcast also? Oh right. Um 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do two podcasts, actually. I do one with my buddy, John Olson. He's in this uh, crazy uh, band called Wolf Eyes. Um, and uh, it's like this avant-garde type stuff. But we that's called Insane Michigan. His, his name's Insane Johnny. <laughs> Follow Insane Johnny on Instagram for, for a lot of fun stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, so um, we do a podcast all just about Michigan stuff, like bizarre stuff. Up to like, you know, we might be doing an episode on Del Shannon, but we'll do stuff on these weird avant-garde people, you know, that no one's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. We just try finding obscure Michigan stuff. But my own podcast is called Hanging on the Telephone, named after the Nerve song, the Power Pop song. Um, and it's basically just I bought all this podcast gear and then the, uh, the pandemic hit. And so I was like, Ugh, I got to like use this podcast gear so i don't feel really <laughs> stupid uh so um i just said well hey i can do stuff over the phone so i've been talking with like uh john from super drag um jody from big star greg cartwright uh from compulsive gamblers and raining sound if you haven't heard raining sound uh they yes. have a new record coming out pretty soon i'm talking with greg tomorrow i'm writing the liner notes for their next record nice um yeah, and so I just talk with people on there, like uh, musicians that I like. And so I might, one of the next episodes is I talk to Drew and Danielle, who made the Big Star documentary. So that, that'll be the, uh, the next episode. And um, one closing thing about my book, and this isn't a plug for my book, I just, it's a funny anecdote that I told you about <laughs> earlier, is I went and I opened up the PDF of my book and I just searched the word Beatles and it popped up exactly 100 times the word beetle <laughs> and that's not including if someone said abbey road rubber soul paul mccartney yeah paul mccartney john Lennon. so that's how tied to big star or that's how tied um you know, that's how big star is tied to the beatles just it's insane how many times they were name dropped and that's throughout you know there's yeah. one chapter during beatlemania where there's a lot of them but uh, if you're a Beatles fan throughout this book, it's you know it's like a love letter to Beatles fandom as well. Yeah, agree. You can all identify with for sure. Well, man, right. Rich, this has been an absolute blast, my friend. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I hope you've uh, thank hope you, you've dug it. We'd love to have you back sometime if you're interested. Anytime, and please edit me so I don't sound stupid. Oh, you sounded uh, great, yeah. dude. <laughs> you killed all it. right. <laughs> Man, thanks, guys. Thanks so much, great. bro. A pleasure to see you. Thanks, Rich. Good to Thank catch you, up. I, I appreciate it. Anytime, man. All right, bro. Talk see to you, you later, man. Later. Bye. Bye. Later. Rich Tupika, everybody. How about that? So fun. A pleasure. The man knows his stuff. You're always happy to talk about Big Star anytime. Yeah. Well, I like going, you know, anytime we can go deep on a band that I really love, it's always a fun conversation, for me at least. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you found it just as fun. It did. Hopefully, listeners, you guys found it just as fun, too. I uh, I highly recommend, at the close of this episode, um, if you've not heard Big Star, and it's been playing under this episode, um, please go check out their catalog. It is full of gems. One of the pleasures of my life is that I discovered Big Star at a time when I was able to really appreciate it and need that music and... Uh, it is a, a major part of my life, and I think you would very much enjoy it as well. And again, if you listen to the song 13 and you don't get like a little heart flutter or something. Check the pulse oof. thing on your Apple Watch and see if you have a pulse. Because I don't think you do. It still gets me every time I hear that song. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh. Yeah. Oh. 
And uh, also Chris Bell's album, I Am The Cosmos. So good. Posthumously released. He only released two songs, in uh, solo songs during his life. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything else came out posthumously 20-something years after. Or I don't know how a while after yeah but uh, but years later his band is seen as uh, as one of the most uh, important bands in history so influential yeah some might say some might say I sure say yeah well my friends I hope you've all enjoyed this show today Uh, if you have please leave us a five star review on your podcast provider of choice Uh, subscribe wherever you listen and uh, follow us on the social medias. Join in the conversation. So many fun conversations happening over on the Facebook. Yeah. There's like, every time we post an episode, there's just like a slew of comments. Comments and, and comments and comments yeah. and comments and comments. And it's fun to talk about it and like see different opinions. And I usually chime in with a funny gif. And, <laughs> and then you bounce. Goes. Yep. <laughs> Well, yeah. you know more about the stuff than I do, so... You're getting there, though. I know a thing or two. You know a thing or two. That's true. But you've already commented the one or two things I know by the time <laughs> I get there, so it's fine. <laughs> you gotta be quicker on the uptake, man. Oh, man. It's I'm okay. working. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys, this has been a blast. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with another very special episode. So, until then... Oh, is next week our special, special episode? It's a special one. <gasps> I mean, it's a it's another author. It is another author. Bum, bum, ba, bum. We're filling up your stockings with excellent reading material this holiday season, folks. You're welcome. You are all welcome. Look, uh, the the COVID is getting bad again, so just like stay home and read a book. Yeah, we're giving you really great books to read. That's true. That's true. Order them. Stay home. Read them <laughs> from the safety of your home. Yeah, and you'll be fine. You're also supporting small businesses. If you order them directly from the author, which you can from our guest next week, um, or you can order it through your favorite local bookstore, which you can for, for Rich's book yeah. that we just talked about. There you go. Get on it. Get on it. Do it. So get on it, and then we're going to see you next week. You heard? Until then, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Rankin' the Beatles. Adios. Hi, y'all.